All right. Well, Eric, great to see you after uh, many years. Maybe I guess the last time I saw you was probably 2018 at your retirement party. Yeah. Yeah. That's when I recall seeing you too. And that yeah. was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was really great. Um, and just to be back at LMC TV and to see every the whole gang there again and everything. Um, but I guess I should say when I first met you, our, our lives first crossed paths, probably when I was like 12 years old. And <laughs> I was applying to be an LMC TV's teen summer film workshop. Um, and I remember that there was a, a, a technicality that I wasn't quite a teenager yet. So I was I was technically <laughs> a year too young, uh, oh my God. but you you graciously uh, took me in, and that was uh, you know what began the love affair with LMC TV and everything. Well, I I have to say that um, uh, you and and several others are poster children for for that whole project, which I think is. Uh, <laughs> Was like you know, and I and and I'm edified to hear that it's still going on. Uh, they, you know, it's something my legacy, so to speak, and uh, and the whole purpose was to meet people like you and to and not I mean you were inspired to begin with, but to give you the tools and the and the environment and the you know to to uh, to pursue your passions um, and and not you know not be frustrated by just sitting at home watching TV or you know so but you you and uh, and and many other young people there um, were were so well uh, driven and everything that uh, they would have succeeded even without us but um, it was just really good a good role to play and I'm really glad you know I was I I was I did it I'm glad that you we met at that time and I'm glad that you, you signed up and yeah. The teenage film workshop was a little bit of a metaphor. <laughs> you know, some people are teenagers when they're 45, and others are, <laughs> others are when they're six, like my granddaughter, for instance. She's a teenager now, really. A bit of a pain in the... No, never mind. <laughs> we'll, we'll cut that part out, you know. Um, but yeah, LMC TV, for me, really opened the doors, and it put, it gave me all the pieces uh, that I needed to, to put into action what I wanted to do with filmmaking and, you know, working in broadcasts and all of that. Um, maybe you could tell me a little bit more about LMC TV when you started and how you got to be, become the executive uh, director of LMC TV and just what it was like back in 1999. Is that when you, you started? Yeah, I started in 99, yeah, yeah. yeah, back in the in the 20th century. <laughs> My God, it seems like it's a, a, you know, a fossilized, uh, who can think of 20th century these days when the 21st century is, uh, is uh, upon us? So, um, okay, well, I, I mean, um, ironic, not ironically, but, you know, Peculiarly, I got the job at LMC TV by answering an ad in the New York Times. Mm. <laughs> yeah, which is not the usual route for people in, in the industry. You know, it's word of mouth and contacts and blah, blah. Uh, but I was kind of like tailor-made for the job. And I was really, really happy to get it. Because just like yourself, when you were a 12, 13-year-old uh, ingenue filmmaker... You know, I too was was uh, you know I was betwixt and between a little bit. You know, I had I'll go back into what I was doing, and I was really really looking for something that could um, tap into my deep desire to 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 connect to to people 
and to and to help them explore their creativity while I was exploring mine. And and that's what the LMC TV. Well, let me tell for for your listeners. This is a public access TV station. It's a right. community TV station. It exists in a very small, you'd call it a market, two towns, Larchmont and Maranek. Now they're blessed towns because some, one of them is very wealthy. Uh, the other one is more or less, you know, mimics the dem- demographics in New York City. So I, I was looking for something that what what this public access TV station does, and a lot of people kind of like, you know, poo-poo it, you know, from... The, the 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 70s films you know mocking it a little bit but it's it's a great community institution because it allows the community to uh, speak to itself and um, and the, our slogan was uh, your community connection which actually happens to be a New York one slogan um, you know and and it basically is the truth um, it's what it does it connects the community to itself and to the outside world so it gave me a playing field, and one thing I've discovered in my life, and, and which you know, it takes a, little, a while to discover about yourself, is that I and I'm pretty sure you're like it too a little bit. Um, I'm best when I am, you know, either independent as an independent producer, independent writer, you know, um, or if I if I'm in an organization that I'm at least in uh, an executive position. <laughs> But I don't do great when I'm, you know, um, a wheel and a, a cog in a wheel. So, mm-hmm. th- so this was corroborated when I became the executive director of LMC TV, and uh, it gave me a kind of a, I wouldn't say carte blanche or a tabula rasa because I came into an existing successful station. But it gave me a playing field in which I I took a lot of meta- a lot of cliches, took the ball and ran with it. And so, you know, the thing I enjoyed the most was creating these, uh, these, these, um, I guess you'd call it magnets of creativity for the community, you know, uh, and one was a teen uh, filmmaking workshop. Why? Because, you know, I'm into film. I like making films. I had a screenplay that was optioned. Uh, too bad it wasn't made. I, it still could be made. Um, and uh, I'm big into film. I went to film school. Um, and also, I started um, this thing called the, uh, the after-school programs in, in the K-6 to and, in the, and for a little while in the, in the high school and, in the, um, and in, the, in the middle school. And that basically allowed kids to you know, play, to, but not play, play in a creative way. This was and at LMC it, TV also, right? And and work and, and work for LMC TV. So in any case, it's a long answer. I mean, that's a long answer. But I I'll just stop now for the time being, and and, and we could continue. But you know, there were many things that that many roads that led me to that job. The K through eight program that was through LMC though that was the after school program. Yeah, the after school program. Yeah. Oh yeah, I remember. I I worked that one with uh, Eileen Mason for a while at Mamaroneck oh, Avenue. Yeah. So yeah, I know that well. And that's also what's fascinating about this community television, that you don't have to be as, you know, Ali Mason's a woman in her 70s, and as people, uh, as you know, and and you were, you know, just a a 12, 13, 14-year-old person. And and these collaborations are are formed, and and great, you know, (laughs) wisdom is exchanged. 
<laughs> frankly. And I don't think, and really, it's hard to think of a, of a place where that kind of a collaboration would be promoted and be successful. And, and that's what's great about that, that um, community TV and, and, that, and that company, LMC TV. Definitely. From the people that worked there to the volunteers. I mean, I crossed paths with so many people that I wouldn't have otherwise. Otherwise, And the shared interest was always community, broadcasting, film, something of that nature. And mm. uh, it just it, it became, uh, you know, a way to connect with all of these people that otherwise I probably wouldn't have thought to associate with. So, you know, it was great in that way. And then I was wondering, when you started in 1999, you said it was already a successful um, uh, uh, public access station. What was it like when you when you started? Oh, well, when I came on board, um, the, uh, think back to that. Well, my predecessor, his name is Joe Windish, and he, uh, he, uh, he uh, is still in the, business to some degree. He, he moved down to Georgia and became uh, working with a, a college there and their library and, and developing video programs there. Um, but I came in, it was fully operational. Um, you know, we had, there are three parts to it. There was a, the, the uh, I guess some people call it the boring and the workaday stuff, which was uh, covering municipal meetings. Now we had three municipalities. So that was not a that wasn't something that you tossed out with, you know, with a snap of your fingers. Um, it was, you know, we covered about, you know, 15 meetings a month. So that required hiring up about 60 people, uh, part-timers, and, and organizing all that. So that was going on. Um, and um, what I discovered, well, I'm not going to, what, I, what I, I set myself a task immediately to, to realizing that not only is that extremely important, and in this community, in particular, people watch these meetings, and and there there are all these anecdotal. My favorite thing about <laughs> about this is there was one time there was some you know and and you know local politics. All politics are local, and local politics are even more local and more vocal, and and people get really animated about this stuff. If you think the the Democrats and the Republicans are are at it, forget about it. You should go to a local meeting. <laughs> and um, <laughs> there, there was one thing that we're discussing some kind of like uh, land use thing in somebody's house and whether they're going to rezone it or something like that. And a guy comes in in his bathrobe, walks down the <laughs> aisle in the middle of that. It, this is in Mamaroneck, the village of Mamaroneck, and starts yelling at the at the um, you know at the, the the head of the the village. You know, saying, "How can you do this?" You know, I was just watching it on the TV, and you and you can't do this to me, and you know. In any case, that's that's. I thought, hey, that's great. <laughs> that's what democracy is all about. That's what communication's all about, and that's. And I'm glad that people got motivated. So, but I saw. I said, my first goal was to, how shall I say, completely professionalize, the uh, the municipal meeting um, organization, mm -hmm. and and I did that. I upgraded the equipment. I, I trained the people. I, uh, you know, uh, they had to pass tests. Um, and, um, and, and not that the meetings weren't being done pretty well before, but they have to, they were, people could really count on them. Uh, you know, and, and it, it, the community took note. Uh, but then beyond that, once that kind of bread and butter issue was, uh, 
was was uh, done. Then I kind of looked around and 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 my juices are artistic creativity. I mean, that's what really makes me happy to participate in and to and to um, promote. So then I began um, thinking of other ways to attract. Um, people in the community who want to be expressed express themselves uh, with and what can we do to help them do that and that the teen filmmaking workshops the after-school workshops um, and trying to think of the other things oh we also do training programs uh, a bunch of uh, a, a bunch of programs you know I began to roll out um, as, as we as we gain the expertise and also as you know our budget expanded for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I did a bunch of other things too, but I'll, I'll stop for that. So that was, it just, I made me very happy. <laughs> yeah. I remember the meetings also. That was one of the first jobs I had. I yep. think when I was like 14, I would work those in the evenings. And uh, like you were saying about the guy with the bathrobe, I remember there was one older gentleman and he would always get up at the very end of the meeting. You'd think it was going to close and he was the last one to speak and he would get up there and talk for like 45 minutes and, uh, you know, you're pulling your hair out. It's 11 o'clock at night and, you know, you want to go home and then all of a sudden you'd see him stand up. You say, oh, no, we're going to be here for another hour. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, uh, maybe not the most uh, exciting part of uh, LMC TV, but also, you know, I do have fond memories of those meetings as well <laughs> for what it's worth. Well, but you did mention your, you know, one of your first jobs, and and that was one thing I was very proud of. It was very, very. Whenever I hired somebody, and I didn't, I mean, I was the, the executive, but you know, other people said, "Hey, so and so applied." You know, I didn't go out and, you know, uh, whatever. You know, whenever somebody was hired, I was very happy because I was very happy to give people their first job and to also make it a meaningful job, and to and to kind of train them in life about, you know, the, the discipline of work ethic. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, and also put money in their pocket. Mm -hmm. uh, that was very, that was very, you know, for young people to um, actually get paid what, you know, and we paid pretty well. You mm -hmm. know, I think mm -hmm. we um, can't, I can't, I won't swear to this, but I think, you know, the $15 an hour, uh, you know, minimum wage that they're talking about. I think we paid it back then. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, and um, because it was an important job and the people we hired were important and it made them feel important and they because they are important. And what you said about it being a meaningful job, in that way, as my first job, I felt great that I, at least I was working in my field, sort of. And I had a job that was of interest to me and I was getting technical knowledge and, and growing my skills and all of that. So it wasn't just, you know, a pointless uh, thing to, to make a few bucks or something. I did see it as uh, something that enriched my, my overall, uh, you know, interests. Well, great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, before LMC TV, what, what were you doing in film, video, broadcasting? What, what were you working on that got you interested in applying to a, a position like uh, LMC TV? Well, I had, a, I guess, a varied career. I mean, I will say that I don't know about other people, um, but for me, um, I, I really, well, I knew that I was going to be an artist of one sort or another, um, and I found the TV industry um, hard. It was a hard industry, 
I mean, it, it still is today, I think, unless, uh, you know, not, you know, it is. And people, you know, I didn't really get the knack of how to succeed in it completely, although I wasn't unsuccessful. But I'm saying is that, you know, you'd, you'd get hired on a show and you say, oh, it's great. I love this stuff, you know, and then all of a sudden, mm, you know, well, it's a budget thing. The sponsors, they, they fold up the whole company, you know, like that. But several jobs I had before this was, uh, I worked for Charlie Rose as a producer. Um, that was a short-lived gig. He was going through a bunch of people, and I, had, I took another job after that, um, you know, uh, but that was fun. And I, I did that because I was a producer for WNET, uh, Channel 13, on their public affairs show. They had, a show, they had two shows, one called Metroline. Uh, where I was a producer, and, and, and that was kind of a, a line producer thing. Um, I did a special about community organizing, and guess what? The whole thing is coming back right now, and commu community policing up in the Northwest Bronx. In fact, I, I'm pitching that to um, the current um, uh, people about, you know, reviving that kind of, um, um, you know, doing a video about, like, what it takes to be, a community, uh, what is community policing? But in any case, back in, that was a while ago. And then they had another show called uh, um, uh, um, 13 Live, which was, a, which to me, that, that was very exciting. It was a live show. I mean, li there's nothing mm -hmm. like live TV. Right, you can't yeah. make mistakes that don't get seen, okay? <laughs> I mean, or, you know, and, and, but also there's an immediacy to it. And, and you know, it just makes a difference when you, you're tuning into something that you know is actually happening then in the world today as you're watching it. You know, this isn't, and um, so in any case, it was five days a week, and uh, I was, um, and it was about public affairs, and, and what I liked about it was, for instance, if something happened, let's say I had a show in the can, you know, I was all ready to go, you know, basically, if it's a live show, you do booking, uh, I mean, you get guests, and, and then, you know, and you, and you do maybe a little video roll-in as a discussion starter about whatever the person that you have on did. Um, who did I have on? Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, oh, uh, it's escaping me right now. I, I work, um, any case, uh, but if something happens in the world, like for instance, there was, uh, I had a show prepared for Monday, and uh, but they had the, um, the, uh, the St. Patrick's Day uh, parade go on on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time that a gay contingent uh, marched in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And they went, I mean, and the organizers, the, uh, the uh, I think the, uh, the uh, Society of Hibernians, uh, I think it's called, they went ballistic about it. You know, you don't, you can't have gays here, and this is the St. Patrick's. And so um, there was a lot, a lot of controversy. So I said, okay, uh, I came in to talk to my uh, senior producer, because I was a, producer um, and say hey let's scrap the show we have in the can we'll do it next week and let's do something right now on the uh you know on the saint patty's day parade and she said, well if you can if you can book it by 2 p.m then then we'll go i said okay because the show aired at 7 p.m prime mm -hmm. time and um any case so i booked it and we had a, a panel discussion it was criticized as one-sided a little bit I think <laughs> but, <laughs> but but that that didn't bother me at that time the important thing was to get 
to me, what you know was wasn't absolute, you know, so-called objectivity because I don't believe in that completely. I think you know people have different opinions, and if in the marketplace of ideas, they can uh, they can work them out. But yep. but to get it out there that there is this controversy, and here's the reasons why the people did what they did, and and, and what their criticisms were. And I, we had a call-in component, and um, it was a great show, and I was really happy uh, that I did that. Um, and that was got my juices flowing. Yeah. Uh, um, so, in any case, yeah, that seems exciting. It also seems like the type of thing that you could get burned out from after a while, just in the moment, having to put on shows like that all the time, uh, especially live events or something. Well, I didn't feel that way. No. Mm. No, I didn't feel... I mean, maybe I only had one child then. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> but maybe if I had two. Um, no, no, but I didn't feel that way. I, You know, to me, what, what burns me out is when I get bored. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, when I get bored. So, so uh, and... Consequently, uh, you know, I'm generally not burnt burnt out. But and and if it is, it's like a, you know, time limited thing. But no, no, no. I excited. I could do that. I could do that now. Yeah. Wow. Well, well. <laughs> you can go back to uh, back to work. You're coming out of retirement. Yeah, something like that. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I am, I am working on projects. Yeah, but uh, they're different. They're different. Mm. Yep. I wanted to ask you about the film you made, The Lost Artist. Um, oh, yeah. This is one of my favorites of yours that I've seen. Um, and I, from the other works I've seen, it's a little atypical in that it's not necessarily, it's not a, exactly a documentary. It's not um, politically motivated necessarily. Um, can you d- just briefly describe the film for anybody listening? Okay. Um it's called The Lost Artist, An Urban Fairy Tale. Mm-hmm. And it brought together a lot of my influences and things that I care about. And, and, more. and it, it started out as a kind of a simple documentary idea about subway mu- musicians, uh, New York City subway musicians in particular. I've always been fascinated by them, I think, a lot, of, a lot of them are really great musicians, and um, and and I'm fascinated by the venue. A lot of times, the acoustics in some of these places are fantastic, like uh, like in uh, Grand Central Station, you right. know. Um, and uh, I'm trying to think of another place, but uh, Grand Central is a good one. And uh, and. The creativity of of these musicians, um, so so and 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 that they, well, you know, some of them are buskers. Yeah, yeah, I guess they all are. That's the definition of it. They're doing it for money, um, but um, I just find them. That's the word. They speak to me of Orpheus, you know, of the legend of Orpheus, of uh, of of. Uh, the underground of, of uh, Hades, of, of entering a world that, that's defined by, uh, by being somewhat hidden, but extremely important because it's the infrastructure upon which New York City g- 
gets around. Now, if you want to conflate those two and say that New York City gets around because of, you know, hell. <laughs> yeah, as an Orpheus, uh, I, I, that was not my complete conception. It was kind of a, you're delving down deep, 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 deep into something that is not completely known and is very profound. Mm-hmm. And so, as it turned out, the more I watched that film that I made, uh, it's more, it's about me also because it's I mean one of the through lines is about um well I, I, I let me back up I so I said okay I want to do it so I started interviewing a bunch of uh, subway musicians and taping them and getting stuff and then I said you know I need I need something to string this together. And so I created an idea, a character, which, and this is not documentary, this is a character who's the lost artist. And he, he was a puppet. He was a life-size puppet, with it, and I, I actually have it, I keep it in my office. I was hoping <laughs> you, you were going to do the podcast with it. Yeah, you know? yeah <laughs> was I? <laughs> well, you can't see me, right? Yeah. So, uh, okay, you're going to put this thing on, I can't tell you, you're going to put it on TV. So, yeah, right. so no, it's, I, I call him Big Head. It's a huge head. It's about, you know, it's about 1.5 times the size of a human head. Kind of like David, you know, isn't it? <laughs> Aren't they accused Michelangelo of making him too big? But in any case, uh, so, um, any case, so I created this puppet, and the idea was the puppet got lost. He was lost and lost and found. Now, I went and interviewed the people in the lost and found in the subway. Uh, you know, they have a lost and found department, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. I loved it. They, just, they had all these things that people had lost. And, and the, and the and this transit workers who worked there were, were conscious of how precious their, you know, how important their job was to reunite mm. people with these important things that they have lost. I love and, that line in the film, the lady, he's talking about some lady who's coming in looking for something, she, and he said, the thing you see in all of their eyes is that they're, they're coming for their life, that whatever the thing is that they lost is so valuable and important to them. So they call up down, uh, down here for everything, and you, when they call and they lost something, and you ask them to describe it, it's their life. I thought how perceptive of that worker also to, to understand that and realize that. Exactly. And that's what I, what, what I'm always, my predilection, I mean, people are deep and a transit worker in the lost and found, you'd say, okay, okay. You know, he's got a pension. He's got, he's got a good job, a city job. He's got good benefits. And that's why he's doing it. No, he's also doing it. Or he grows into that, or or she, because I think there's a couple of women there. But I interviewed some men. They they absorb what's going on and 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 are very very insightful about it and very respectful of the people that they're serving. Yeah. Any case, so any case, that was a metaphor. The artist was lost, and I was lost. I mean, it, it, you know, many artists get lost. You know, writer's block, whatever. Um, I was feeling I was lost. I wouldn't say lost in a deep and a profound way, but, you know, I wanted, you know, it, it, you know, I was saying, well, what am I going to do next in my life, etc. So it, that way it was a metaphor for me a little bit. And uh, so this, this lost artist is lost in the lost and found. And, and um, 
somehow, but then he he has to find himself. So he gets out of there somehow, or his alter ego does, and he wanders the subways looking at other artists and trying to discover what in the other artist relates to him so that he can find himself. What is his artistic, you know, uh, MacGuffin or chops or whatever you would call it. And so that was my, that was my, you know, uh, that was what uh, strung these different stories together, that they related to this lost artist who was taking bits and pieces of other artists and putting them into himself and trying to decide, you know, what kind of artist am I going to be? And this was part, and then in the film, and this, you know, uh, he, he realizes that he's doing this because of his father. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and he has these memories of his father, who is a writer, and uh, who uh, was alien, how's the word, um, distant, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. he was so entren- entrenched and entranced with his his work, his creativity, his writing. And, um, and uh, you have this scene where the lost artist... W- uh, remembers or watches his father, who looks just like the lost artist, because it's actually a scene, you know, and his head, and his head is down on a typewriter mm-hmm. uh, because he's thinking, and he's, you know, how intense that can be. And he and he stands and he lifts his head back up, and there is marks on his on his brow where the typewriter keys have impressed it themselves into his into his forehead. You know, nothing, nothing bleeding or nothing, but, you know, red marks, you know, that'll go away in a minute. And this was a vivid image for this lost artist. And so then he, you know, then he visits his father's grave and he, and then he then is re-inspired to go out and try and find himself. And in the end, (laughs) and it's very hokey, I think, the end, in the end, he goes to the lost and found and finds himself. There he (laughs) is in the shelf, you know, of the lost and found. And then his his ego and his alter ego or whatever unite in this dance, you know. Which, uh, and then then he goes off happily into the sunset, into the sunrise, which is a very I love that shot. He goes up an escalator at 59th Street from mm-hmm. the deep cavern of the subway right into the sunlight and disappears. Yeah. yeah. So, so yes, I, I now I'm telling it. I love it. I mean, I I like it too. Thank you. Thank you for. Um, <laughs> For tagging that, yeah. And, and then, um, okay, is this um, is this based on your own life? Is this is that your father who's represented in the film? Yes. Was he also an artist? Yeah, my father was a writer. Okay. Um, and uh, and I'm finding more and more, you know, the themes of my stories uh, relate to um, a father's search. I would call it. Um, and. Um, and uh, my life was, uh, what should I say? My father's a radio writer and actually, and television, and he had a Broadway play produced, uh, a collaborative effort with, a, with, a, with another radio writer named Julian Funt. And these were the golden age of radio that uh, Woody Allen had celebrated in his, in his movie. Actually, the golden age of, age of radio is coming back, but they call it a podcast. Yeah, but, right. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and so he, uh, you know, it's how shall I put it? He too was. I mean, he too was distant. I mean, he 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 died at a very young age when I was seventeen, and he was forty-five, 
and he had Lou Gehrig's disease, and he was ill for about seven years. Uh, so from the age of 10 to 17, you know, uh, basically I was uh, relating to a, a very ill father, and I didn't know he was going to die. I don't think he did either. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But um, but then, you know, as I grew older and grow older, I I feel the loss more. Mm-hmm. That's all. And mm-hmm. and so um, I feel that I'm kind of wondering who he is, what he is, why, you know, and and what am I in relationship to that? You know, so um, who am I in relationship to that? And I, I, I like it. I like doing that. I, <laughs> it sounds like, uh, um, you know, it could be very sad. And in some ways it is a little, but I don't, I'm not feeling sorry for myself or anything like that. I'm enjoying the, the search, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. and so... Uh, in, the, in, in many of the works that I do, it, it sounds like I'm that prolific, but no. Uh, but um, that is one of the themes that I explore, either as the main theme or as something else, mm-hmm. uh, or it, as a sub-thing. Yeah, that's great that you have those pieces of art from your father also. Um, yeah. And, you know, one, one of the great things about art is really that legacy that you can leave something of yourself and inspire people beyond your life. And, uh, and often those pieces of art, you know, say more than you could say in words, even if you were living or something. In a way, it's a closer look at the person in some cases. Hmm. Well, interestingly, I, I have more than pieces. It's the word, uh, I mean, I took, I took upon myself one project. I, I got an MFA in, in creative writing at, at City College uh, recently. Um, I, you know, it took a while, but I did it. Actually, I started it when I was at uh, the TV station, uh, the community one, LMC TV. Um, and uh, uh, one of the projects was to research. Uh, the title of it was My Father, My Muse. And so, as a, you know, in researching all that, I went, I went back. I happened to have, oh, about four banker boxes, five banker boxes of scripts that he wrote wow. that my mother kept. <laughs> and um, and uh, some of them were, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, soap operas and stuff like that. What, his, the big thing was, uh, this is Nora Drake. I think it's some, it was the number two soap opera on uh, CBS, I think it was, oh, radio wow. for, a, for a long time. Um, and then, um, but more than that, he wrote a bunch of other things. And then he wrote a few things for his, you know, uh, you know, out of his own, uh, not, not commercially, not for, not for hire, that he tried to pitch. Uh, and, uh, and those are pretty interesting, you know, mm. to, to, uh, to, to scan through. And I, I mentioned that it was just a few, not a few things. It's sort of a burden. I don't know what to do with them. <laughs> you know, I, don't, I mean, you know, uh, and I'm not still still not sure what I'm going to do with them. I thought I'd co- I'd compile a little booklet of of the ones that I thought the most uh, uh, biographical, autobiographical. Um, but maybe uh, I don't know. Uh, so anyway, I still don't know. So uh, that's over there, and maybe how should I call it? Maybe it's the little fire that's burning uh, that you know, keeps me, keeps me inspired in different directions. Yeah. So yeah, um, I wanted to ask you also about another film I watched of yours, Where Can I Live? Oh, yeah. Where... Um, 
how did you know really great project how did you start with this i also are you do you live in park slope yeah okay. i do i live in park slope brooklyn yeah okay so and i did at the time i made it mm-hmm. although although i had a hiatus um uh oh you're asking about where can i live so there we go um well where can i live came off uh the first documentary i made was with tammy gold and eddie and um and oh, it, with my colleague Tammy Gold, um, and um, and Dan Gordon, and Tammy's a professor now. Now is a professor. She wasn't then at Hunter College, and uh, and both she and I come from a little bit of a lefty background. You know, we were activists and anti-war. We're talking about you know, and she's 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 younger than me, but not not that much. And we're friends to this day. I mean, we're in fact. Um, we're, we're good friends. And we started a little company called Tamarick Productions, Tammy and Eric. Um, <laughs> but uh, we're both coming out of kind of a self-imposed, you know, uh, political activist background thing where we would be anti-war activists and some political organizing, labor union stuff. And we were both feeling that it, it was inadequate to who we were. Mm-hmm. And she had already made a film called uh, Guatemala, My Country Occupied. Um, and uh, and I had had experience um, in the civil rights movement as a, uh, in, the, in a group called the Free Southern Theater, which was a civil rights um, a theater group that traveled throughout the South during the civil rights era. Era. It's the one in New Orleans, right? New Orleans, right. Oh, I, you connected me with them when I was living there. Oh, yeah. yeah well, yeah. you kind of tell me about that. Well, uh, I didn't I didn't actually get very involved or anything. I, I spoke to them a few times, and uh, in the end, I didn't really do any work for them. But I did oh. talk to them, and uh, it just, I remember, that was, yeah, the traveling um, group through the South. Oh, I'm so, yeah, I didn't remember I did that. Did you meet John O'Neill? I, did I you spoke, to, spoke to him, yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, um, he, we talked about you and, uh, kind of that we left it at that. I didn't wind up doing yeah. any work for him, but. Oh, well, any case, I'm glad you got, you got the feel of it. New Orleans is a magical city. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any case. So, um, so we're both coming out of this frustrated, uh, by the, you know, the being hemmed in a little bit by political ideology. And, and so Tammy was working with the postal service. And uh, with some of her friends were organizers in a, in a, in a postal union uh, group that was uh, seeking to reform postal union um, uh, practices to be more militant. And, and, and we were friends and, and uh, we became friends and, and we were both working out of the Henry Street settlement, as I recall, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, and so we, she's, she's, you know, we said, well, let's make a movie about that. <laughs> and we did. And that was kind of launched both of us into the film video um, future mm-hmm. uh, in, in our careers. And I mentioned that as a precursor to, uh, where, to Where Can I Live? Because, you know, that was a collaboration with Tammy, and it was great, um, Tammy and Dan. And, um, and this is signed, sealed, and delivered. You're talking that's about that's signed, sealed, and delivered. Okay. Yeah. So I want to do some on my own. So uh, you know, I said, you know, I was 
I've always been interested in housing and I was living it. You know, I was renting a place with my uh, wife um, and, uh, and uh, in, in Brooklyn and Park Slope and watching and you're talking gentrification back then. It's still going on. Now it's like, you know, it's on steroids. Mm-hmm. But back then it was, it was pretty virulent too. So uh, I wanted to do a film about where can people live? How do they live? How, do, you know, how can they secure security for themselves in terms of housing and otherwise? So um, I basically, you know, you know, and I wanted to do this more or less by myself. So I, I did. I got a grant from, um, where is it, uh, National, is that the, I'm not sure I did, from the National Endowment. Yeah, I got it from the New York State Council on the Arts. It was a grant that was part of it. Um, the, uh, the, the, um, uh, the, Ro- the Robeson Fund, and there's several other grants that helped me, but that wasn't, I mean, that was helpful. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was really a work of love. And it was quite successful, um, you know, in terms of, uh, I think it, it won Global Village uh, Prize, uh, audience, uh, uh, best audience, uh, you know, the most popular one. And then the, uh, it was broadcast on WNET, uh, Independent Focus, and, and it was distributed throughout the country. It got quite a good distribution, distribution uh, through Cinema Guild. And, mm. uh, and, um, What's a, and again, there, my, my, uh, my purpose was to, you know, my, my thesis was how do people secure their, their, their housing? How do they secure that for themselves? What can they do? What do they do? And, um, and so I followed uh, two or three families and what happened to them and how, and how, and how they organized um, to stay where they are. And, and, and if they didn't, uh, what happened to them? And what were the forces that were, that were Im- impacting their lives? And, and, and why were these, these forces, how did, they, how did they generate? And these are the forces of development and gentrification. And, and, um, and that's it. I mean, I, so that's how the, the film got started. Yeah, yeah. I, I found it interesting to see behind the tactics that the developers use to get people out of their their houses. Uh, you find out that people were threatened at gunpoint. That one building was actually set on fire. Um, you know, the struck the infrastructure, the uh, the foundation of some of them was uh, chipped away at. So inspectors would say that the the building wasn't up to to specs, and you know had to be uh, everyone had to leave. Um, so that was just really eye-opening for me to see uh, how uh, the drastic measures these developers were taking to, to take over these buildings. What's that? Well, that's the meter, the gas meter. No, this pillar. Hmm. I don't know. I thought that's the whole the floor up, right? Now, we now sat down the the store cave in. Why do you think he saw that? He had to get rid of us. So the uh, inspectors say, well, the building ain't safe to live in. The beams are falling down. Therefore, it's not safe for the children, so you've got to get out. He's a smart cookie. He knows just what to do. Well, unfortunately, it's still going on. I mean, it, the film was recently aired at uh, the Fifth Avenue Committee in, the, in Brooklyn, uh, where they had a... Uh, 
uh, you know, an initiative against gentrification and other uh, film projects they, they aired too. And it was uh, well received, you know, people, uh, it was unfortunately still completely pertinent. And if anything, the tactics have gotten worse. Um, you know, yeah, that was exactly true. I opened with a scene of a, of a, of a woman having gotten what's called a dispossessed. Mm-hmm. And she's a Hispanic woman, and she was completely beside herself. Um, actually, the opening where the credits roll is this guy, you don't know who he is, walking down the street, you know, kind of like, you know, just walking down the street, you know, who is he, why is he doing it? And, and then you see him approach, knock on this door, give this woman this this piece of paper, and, and then the woman goes ballistic. I don't know what's going on. Why did I give this to me? It's a dispossessed. I have to get out of my house. Why? What's going on? And it just, to me, that scene encapsulated the the horror, the 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 the, the um, complete undermining and insecurity uh, that's created by by the the lack of protection of people who are living in houses who are just. In, 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 in rental properties, and in, in what the what the developers will do um, to um, you know to intimidate uh, and get them out, so that they can make more money. I mean, yeah. it's simple as that. More money. Rubina, she's okay. Put it in there. Fun? Yeah. Have Rubina come out. No, have Rubina. That's not her. That's a water. What are you doing here, sir? What are you doing? What are those papers you have? She don't have to carry. She pay her rent. Her rent is on time. I don't know what they're doing. Nunca en la vida, nunca me han dado esposo. De Manhattan vine aquí a esta ciudad. Tengo una hija allá abajo. Donde quiera, en Chicago, donde quiera. Tengo siete y siete hijos. Si me ven mis hijas, tengo otro niño. Se lo ayudé a echar su pajiva mientras mi hija trabajaba para darle dinero al gobierno. Y mi hijo ya está en Killer Garden. Y me siento orgullosa. That scene stood out to me also, and you know, was like really powerful. How did you get that shot? Were you just there at the time when when the papers Luck. were delivered? Wow. Yep. Luck. It's amazing. Yeah, it was... then he's walking away, and I think it's you talking on the mic, saying, you know, what are those papers? What are those papers? And you know, following yeah. him. Um, but you have really great shot. Well, I reverse the order of action. Yeah, I got the, I got, I, you know, what's the word? I got to him walking down the street after he had done the deliver, after he had served the woman, mm-hmm. and then uh, so I. But I put that first in the film, and then and then it created this expectation of what's what's this guy doing, and then you see what he does and, and the effect that he has, and and you're hopefully you're drawn in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think a very powerful yeah. opening, definitely. Um, what do you think ultimately has resulted from groups like the, the 13th Street block group and um, the, these kind of advocates? Um, like you said, gentrification is still going on at an exponential rate in Brooklyn and everything. Um, do you think these groups have had success for the people or is it just this unstoppable problem that's still happening? It's... Well, of course, that's a great question, as they say on the talk shows. Um, uh, I don't think it's unstoppable. I think the groups have had a tremendous success in, 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 in maintaining and propping up and in some cases um, strengthening the rent stabilization laws and, um, 
and the the rights of renters. In fact, and I know that I'm pretty sure that uh, developers and property owners, and we're talking about the big ones here, you know, are a little bit hamstrung um, by uh, the existing properties, you know, rental properties in New York City. I think the biggest problem is 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 large capital, big capital. You know, I mean, humongous, you know, enterprises that come in, you know, like the like the, um, the the yards over in Manhattan in you know great right, swaths right. of land are just grabbed up and in these enormous uh, <laughs> uh, erections uh, occur and, and and they were you know the properties are rented out to you know people for who wants a pied a terre from Dubai or something like that mm-hmm. uh, in the, in New York and it's complete. I remember just to hark back, and I think this is one of the things that hopefully a mayor, um, you know, can 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 direct. When I was young and I was going to college and stuff, you know, it was nothing to rent a little an inexpensive uh, flat in the Lower East Side, even in Greenwich Village. You know, um, Brooklyn was like the, the you know way out there and inexpensive. You know. And as an artist, you know, that was, that's the incubator. That's what draws artists to an area, to be able to live, you know, be among other artists, be in a, a neighborhood, uh, and not have it, you know, not having it cost you every penny that you own. Um, I mention that because uh, I think that's one of the huge challenges facing New York City, and it's not being met well. So mm-hmm. I do think that the existing... Uh, the existing housing, uh, there's been a holding pattern a little bit that that uh, rent groups that that I featured in my film um, have been able to um, you know uh, uh, create and and uh, and continue the uh, the defensive posture, but it's defensive, and I think until we become offensive and create decent low-income housing. Um, that is good, you know. I'm not talking about like warehouses, or, you know, uh, or anything, you know, but places that you'd like to live, um, and 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 that are differentiated visually, you know, that are artistic themselves. Um, then I think, um, you know, eventually, until the power of capital <laughs> is is curtailed, then mm-hmm. and 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 um, and forced to serve. Uh, you know, the population as a whole better, uh, then, you know, the war will continue and probably, you know, it'll, uh, the rights of the, pro- of the renters will be, uh, will be uh, eroded. So, mm-hmm. so I think it's a good fight and it's a necessary one. And I think the ultimate one is political, mm-hmm. you know, on, uh, on a very big political basis, a, a political thing. Yeah. Eric, I know you have uh, limited time here, so I just I wanted to jump again and um, just quickly. You mentioned signed, sealed, and delivered before, um, but I was hoping we could talk a little more about that before uh, your time is up. Mm. Okay, great. Well, I just learned. I mean, um, and it's great that signed, sealed, and delivered. Well, first of all, it's a it's a film about uh, a wild. I wouldn't say a wildcat, but a, um, a rebel faction in in the labor union of the U.S. Post Office 
the the uh, the northeast uh, branch of it, um, and it occurred. We're talking historically back in 1978, um, and um, and it was about the organizing of these workers for uh, for their rights and for their safety. Um, again, and they organized about against two two entities. One is the union, uh, the mainstream union, um, that was led by a fairly progressive union leader for the time uh, named Mo Biller, um, and uh, but who 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 were weak in in um, in getting how should I put it in first of all allowing workers to to um, to organize and then in to and then uh, addressing the safety conditions that they they were forced to work under. Now this has echoes today. I mean, first of all, in the post office, but I'm thinking of Amazon, um, in in that workers were treated like, you know, I'm not going to use, yeah, they were treated like automatons. They had trouble going to the bathroom when they had to go, um, and uh, if they complained about um, a, a safety condition, it was you know wasn't addressed properly or easily. Or quickly, they were fired at will um, quite often, and uh, and and the union would sometimes not not fight for them as as well as they should. So um, we stepped into the situation. There was a there was a faction that was trying to take over the leadership and, and have it more militant. In the midst of our filming of all this, um, a worker was killed, um, and of course that ramped everything up in terms of, uh, you know, uh, underscoring the importance of what the, the rebel uh, workers were fighting for and of, uh, you know, and, and shining a light on, on what the conditions really were in, in the post office and how they've been um, ignored for all these years. And this um, is Michael McDermott you're talking about. Yeah, Michael McDermott. On December 15, 1979, Michael McDermott, a 25-year-old mail handler at the Jersey City Bolt, was trapped in a conveyor belt and crushed to death. 200 postal workers attended the funeral. A particular machine of Mike McDermott, we just found this out from at the Osher inspection, found that all the limited switches and the relays that if somebody got jammed, the machines were removed years ago so that the, the mail wouldn't stop moving. And also, there was no shin guard on the machine, and there was no limit switch. But the, the main damn thing, if there was a shin guard there, he could have locked his body, maybe his arm or his leg, and he wouldn't have got sucked entirely into the machine. But the thing we found out that really makes us mad is that there's a jam relay inside the machine that was removed, so that if a box or a body got stuck in there, it would stop, and they took it out. Well, there was a mail handler working a truck in an outbound extendable conveyor. He got caught in a conveyor belt. The safety limit switch on the front hand side of the conveyor belts are wired out as a matter of routine because they interfere with production and the guy was killed. He was sucked right into the conveyor belt and ripped apart. He would come home at night complaining about his back and how his gloves and his pants were caught and torn because of the conveyors being stripped of its safety devices. Who is to blame for my husband's death? Are the postal supervisors to blame? Maybe they didn't care and wanted the mail sacks out. 
Is it not their duty to check these conveyor belts periodically themselves? Is this what a life is worth at the Postal Service a sack of mail? That became extremely poignant. Um, and of course, one of the main focuses of of the uh, folk, yeah, of the uh, of the film, mm -hmm. and so um, let's say, uh, it was. What what makes I think it very interesting is that it 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 was this, as as many documentaries are that do this and have the luxury to do it and or, or the tenacity or both. Um, and we didn't have luxury. We, we did this on our own, basically, and whatever, you know, back and we got later uh, was ex post facto. Um, but um, was when it took place over time. In other words, we started at the beginning, what the people were talking about and you know, how they started organizing. Then, uh, the, then uh, Michael McDermott was killed, you know, and then we basically followed the storyline as it related to that, and and then and and this was true of work, and I live too, uh, is that we 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 captured the oh the the the, the I'm trying to word the militancy of the union, how they how they uh, of the rebel faction of the union in particular, how they wanted you know how they fought for these changes and how they're not going to give up. And it came from a clear working class perspective. These people that, you know, needed these jobs and were putting their jobs and their lives, obviously, online. Mm -hmm. And 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 I, I dare say the film captured that. And I think that was an inspiration to people at the time. It was, um, this was a, a very successful film in terms of, uh, it, it it was entered into what became the Sundance Festival. It was then called the U.S. Film and Video Festival, and it won first prize. Oh wow! And uh, yeah. you know, as well as the American Film Festival, which won first prize as a as a video documentary. And you said that now it's it's in the Workers United Film Festival again. Yeah, there's a there's a United there's a Workers United. Uh, what is it called? Workers Unite. Um, uh, film festival. So you can go to Workers Unite Film Festival, all one word, dot org, and click on um, uh, Watch 2021, and you can watch it uh, now. It's going to be aired on May 7th for about uh, a week. Uh, it's free. You can look at it. You can watch it. You can vote on it. You can comment on it, and it, it's it's had. No, I wouldn't say surprisingly. It's it's come around again mm -hmm, <laughs> as yeah. being very pertinent, and it shows the history of of, of uh, workers fighting for their rights and um, and and how relevant it is today. Yeah. And you know, I must say, yeah. Well, the last podcast I did was with a filmmaker who made a film called The Great Postal Heist. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That came They're out. playing it. Yeah, so that won uh, best documentary at uh, Workers Unite Film Festival uh, <laughs> last year, I guess. Um, so, and also through that same guy, I edited a short piece on the 50 year anniversary of the Great Postal Strike of 1970. Hmm. Um, so these names like Mo Biller and all these people have become like household names here. Well, that's great. 
I mean, it's great. It's just it's great edifying for me to see that you know, yeah, my my collaborative work move, uh, you know, lives. Uh, but I will say now that you mentioned that the the great postal the post office heist, the great postal and, heist, yeah, yeah, and sign seal to deliver are going to be shown back to back from the Workers United. Uh, Unite um, Film Festival in October in theaters in this, in the I think it's called the uh, um, Cinema Village. Uh, they're going to be airing there oh, also, wow. huh. and that will be that should be announced on that website. Uh, uh, but I know that's coming up. It's not clear exactly what date they're going to air, but they're going to be aired back to back. Oh, I can't cool. believe that the films will be aired back to back, and then these two podcasts by chance came out one after the other. <laughs> so it so out now you know <laughs> what lies behind that forever stamp. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> the films are going to be forever. <laughs> so, so that's it. Um, all right, Eric. Well, since uh, 2018, you've been technically retired here. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to ask you if you have any projects you've been working on recently, uh, any or anything coming up in the near future that you're going to be doing filmmaking wise. Um, I'm not sure about filmmaking, although I, you know, uh, I, I'm working. You know, first of all, I finished my MFA in creative writing at City College. And wow, if anybody wants to, what? That's amazing. That's great. Well, thank you. Uh, but I, anybody listening wants a great, great education and a great experience um, and at affordable price. <laughs> <laughs> Go to City College and join their MFA program. It, it is, it, and also I might add, oh, so word. Um, well, the the words toss around too much. One of the most diverse and fascinating places to be educated because if you're, you know, I, I read a lot of literature courses. I took them, you know, a lot of novels, Zadie Smith, and all that. And everybody in the class, we had people from, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, from Nigeria, from Ghana, from Europe, from France, from Canada, the United States, all, you know, everybody, Muslims, Jews, you know, and they're all sitting there and it just feels so easy to discuss things and get these perspectives that, you know, you would, I don't know where else you're going to get that. I don't, yeah, LM, I don't LMC care. TV. However, what? I said oh. at LMC TV. <laughs> well, there you get something, but there it was, you know, in terms of diversity, it wasn't that diverse place, but right. it was, was diverse enough. Oh, and so as a result of that, I'm finishing a novel. Um, and so that's kind of been my focus. Um, I got to say, you know, COVID intervened a little bit. Uh, and that I fortunately didn't get it. Um, my daughter did, but she was mild. And, uh, we, you know, like every family, we hunker down and support um, my, my children, uh, grown children and my granddaughter. And, um, and of course, the election. I got to tell you, the election took a lot, a lot of energy out of me, not out of me, but for me, mm-hmm. from me. And, uh, you know, I was on the phone bank every day, every day, phoning for... At, MJ Hager in Texas did not make it, but uh, Warnock and, and Ossoff in Georgia, I was phone banking for them every day, and that was great. And that you said was just you great. got personal calls thanking you afterwards, right? Yes, I got to say, it was <laughs> th- that in particular, the Stacey Abrams campaign, uh, you know, it didn't matter, frankly. You just called, uh, you, whoever 
was doing a phone bank and and um, and you know um, that you could tap into and do. It didn't matter who it was really, but I found the Stacey Abrams fair fight and um, and those two campaigns itself from from their campaign headquarters uh, were just great. You know, you you went on Slack, you know, you chatted up people. I, I found it was fascinating. I talked to all these voters in Georgia. Yeah, you, know, you get a you know, you get everybody. You got a lot of Republicans. You talk, you know, I you don't want to waste your time talking to a Republican. Sorry for the Republicans listening to this. I wouldn't consider a waste of time, frankly. I enjoy talking to Republicans who are who are talkable. Um, and I did, um, but I'll t tell you that in a minute. But yeah, when I was done campaigning, you know, and we won, which we didn't, I didn't think we would. Uh, you know, I was hoping, but, and I was, and I don't pray, but I prayed <laughs> that we would. And, uh, and when I did, I, I was walking, I had lunch with my cousin and I was out there on the, you know, uh, by the East River or some place. And, um. Uh, because outdoors because of COVID, and, and I got a phone call. It's the campaign manager for the Ossoff camp. No, it was a Warnock campaign, just thanking me personally uh, for it. And, you know, it had details of, you know, because uh, I had done it a lot, and they were calling up people who had done, done it quite a bit. And I also got one from the Ossoff campaign, too. And so I thought, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a class act. Yeah, that's a class act. It's nice to be recognized. I'm sure you put in a ton of hard work, uh, campaigning and everything. So it's nice to be thanked for all of that. Yes, <laughs> but it's nicer to win. Right there, you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's also, I mean, because it was to me, it was so important, um, and uh, I plan to do it again. I think this country. Uh, we're at a huge uh, inflection point. I think uh, it can go both ways, you know, good or bad. And uh, I think, uh, I really don't think uh, the good is uh, in the bag, so to speak, at all. You know, and uh, if it does go, uh, whatever. I won't go past it. You know, I think organizing and organizing on a national political level and on a local level, in particular, because state houses, you know, keeping elections fair are extremely important. So, yes, obviously I'm engaged with that, and that takes my time. But it's not all of my time. Mm -hmm. If I do any video, it'll be, it'll be about that, I'm yep, sure. Yep. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing the next project, Eric. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing yours. I took a look at your, uh, your website. I was... Uh, uh, it was it was fascinating. I mean, cinematography is like fantastic, oh, and, and and you know I I I see your American Dream project. I I'm gonna you know I I'd interview you now, but I guess uh, we could talk about that another time. Yeah, but yeah, that'd be great. I'm look looking forward to it. I'm really glad we connected again, and I look forward to you know staying connected. Uh, me too, Eric, and just thanks again for for everything, uh, for really opening the doors to, uh, to film and everything for me when I was younger, and uh, for just, you know, remaining a friend and, uh, you know, a, a co-worker throughout my life, pretty much. Well, thank you. It's an honor to do that. All right, Eric. Well, I'll let you go. We're past the hour here, and uh, okay. thanks for, for talking today. It was a real pleasure. All right. Take care.